Turn, if you will, to uh, Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, we've uh, been dealing really in general with, hey, what is discipleship? It may not seem like a big topic, but it is a big one. It's a good one. Uh, It's a rich topic. Um, And sort of starting in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts really is the beginning of things. And the book of Acts will set some things in motion, some principles, some priorities. You know, if you're reading through the New Testament and you come across deacons, well, where do deacons begin? They just don't fall out of the sky in Philippians or Timothy. They began in the book of Acts. A lot of things begin in the book of Acts, and so it's important to start there, really with any concept of things. So that's what we've sort of been doing. We came to Acts, and Acts chapter 2, 1 through 36, is just really an amazing message, the first message preached after Jesus is risen from the dead. There's the event in the book of Acts of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we worked through that. And then there's the prophecy of Joel that's quoted by Peter almost verbatim, a couple little changes. And so we've been addressing that. And as we've gone through this prophet Joel, Peter introduces it, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and then he's going to quote several, what we would call verses. But the first thing he says, you have to understand how to interpret the Bible. This is that. This is the fundamental me- method of interpretation, the fundamental, if you will, hermeneutic. What is in the New Testament fulfills what is in the Old Testament. This in the New Testament is that. And so the, as Peter states it, that this coming of the Holy Spirit with these flames of fire on people's heads and the things that were visible and the things that can be heard, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that. And so we learn that uh, just in the first message, the opening statement is how to interpret the Old Testament because he's speaking to Jews and he's going to tell them, hey, you've all been in, you know, reading, reading the Old Testament this way and you need to see it a different way. Christ in the Old Testament is what you need to see. There's an Old Testament era of promise and prophecy, type and shadow, full of symbol and imagery. These are ears, these are periods of time in the Bible that we know about where things, characteristics are specific to an era. So this Old Testament era is that of promise and prophecy, of type and shadow. The New Testament era is explicitly stated to be that of accomplishment, of fulfillment, of reality, of substance, of manifestation. And we all look forward to a final era of all things being made new. So this is the basic structure of how to read the Bible. You read the Old Testament in the light of its fulfillment and you recognize that there are eras of redemption that have specific characteristics belonging to that era. Peter starts out quoting and saying, in the last days it shall be, there's going to be a certainty to God's bringing things to pass. We think of these last days. We, we mostly think of last days as future to us. Last days we tend to equate with end times. And how we all really see it is when Joel speaks of the last days, he's speaking to, of last days at least 500 B.C. 
And so for him, the last days being future to him are not necessarily future to us. And we need to understand that. It's really important to, to get the viewpoint of the prophets and uh, not just sort of subliminally import our own viewpoint into things. So for Joel, the last days are in the future for him. And the beginning of the last days is when God pours out his spirit. So for Joel, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit begins the last days. That's its beginning. And then the question was, well, when do the last days end? And Joel gives us some terminology that's significant. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. That these last days will come to a place where God starts to intervene in human history in a very significant and specific and sovereign way. God's going to do this. I will show wonders, he says. The signs on the earth below will be blood and fire and vapor of smoke, a picture of an ancient battlefield where death, destruction, fires, columns of smoke are everywhere. It's clear that it's a picture of defeat and devastation, God judging the nations in its context. And not only will this be this earth below, but there are wonders in the heaven above, things far out of the reach of human capability. Wonders in the heaven above, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. And that will be before the day of the Lord comes, the great and the magnificent day. So we went through Joel and we saw that actually, Joel, this isn't just one statement in Joel, one passage in Joel, but there are actually five places in this little teeny book where Joel focuses on and speaks of and points us to the day of the Lord, points everybody to the day of the Lord. In 115, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Not necessarily a positive view of the day of the Lord, although it's a true view of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord does not come to bring roses to everybody. For some it will be, but for many, really for most, will be destruction from the Almighty. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, Joel 2, 2 through 3. As you go through Joel, there's this intensification of the language. And also the scope begins to expand. Joel 2.11, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? This is not a day that someone you should take lightly or will be able to take lightly. People may take it lightly now, but they will not be able to take it lightly when it comes. Who can endure it? I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's what Peter quotes, 2, 30 through 31. And 3, 13 through 16 is just this sort of final, uh, I trimmed the passage down and we looked at it, the larger passage last week, just, just trimmed it down just so we can just catch the essence of things. 3, 16, this final statement in the context is the, is the nation's. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat, where God will judge. That's what Jehoshaphat means. 
The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So this is Joel and the passages that sort of the expanse of the passages in Joel. And so with that in mind, we want to see that Joel has a local and sort of temporal or, you know, historical uh, fulfillments of this. The other prophets talk a lot about this also. And sometimes there's local and historical fulfillment of this day of the Lord. But all of those days of the Lord in history are harbingers of the one final great day of the Lord, the cosmic day of the Lord, the celestial day of the Lord, um, the day in which God brings final and full judgment. So with that in mind, just sort of a reminder, and I just wanted that language to be on our minds because it's sort of central to what we're addressing. Matthew 24, 29 through 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. These are the words of Jesus. Red letters if you have that kind of a Bible. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us today in this. Well, Heavenly Father, we come uh, or continue in that topic that at least 2,500 years ago and more, you spoke of the day in which you will come and bring a reckoning for the entire human race. Lord, it's sometimes uh, we think of our own selves, and we should. We all have a personal eschatology. We all have a personal day of the Lord coming. Each one of us, no one, no one of us will escape it. And you tell us to live our lives in view of it. And that's just so, so crucial, so much a part of our, uh, of our walk with you. And then you've told us that. You tell, have told us that time and time again. You told us in red letters. You told us through apostles. You told us through Joel. You told us through Isaiah. You've told us all over your word. There's a day coming. You've warned us. You've let us know. You've uh, given us just a, a full perspective on it so that when we arrive at that day, we won't be caught short. We won't be thinking, well, I didn't know, and, and I, if I'd just known, I could have done this or that. And, and Lord, you, you're just trying to tell us, no, you know, and, and live your life in the light of it. Lord, this is a sobering topic. But it's a topic we need. It needs to always be with us. It needs to be part of our proclamation to the world. Lord, sometimes we just want to talk to people about things that, that we hope will draw them in and and we forget that when you talk to people in hope of drawing them in, this is what you included. This is part of it. This is the warning that you give. And so, Lord, as we consider your words, your red letters here on this topic, where you appropriate the language of the prophets and the language of Joel, Lord, this morning we will be sobered. We will be clear in our understanding. And we will be, oh Lord, renewed in our commitment to follow you. That everything in our lives, even our idle words, we're, we're accountable to you. 
Lord, let this also be that day of salvation that the prophets also talk about, the day of salvation that you talk about, the day when we see you for who you are and we become like you are, a day that's full of glory, a day that should always be in our minds and hearts also, not just from the standpoint of giving account of our lives, but from the standpoint of seeing you as you are being conformed into your likeness. If we're not there when it happens, being raised from the dead. Lord, this is our hope. This is our bottom line hope. This is, if, if there's no resurrection, then we have no hope in anything. Everything's vain and empty. So this is our great hope. And pray that that will also come through as we look at these words of the prophets, and in particular, Joel that you specifically use about your second coming. Heavenly Father, we just pray you would bless all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it's very obvious that Jesus takes the words of the prophets. I mean, it's there. It's undeniable. Uh, Some folks possibly could deny it, but um, it's pretty undeniable. And Jesus uses this language to paint a picture of what his second coming will be. He's talked about a few things before, and then he says now, and we'll get to it, after this certain, I don't know, set of days, the tribulation of those days, things are going to become radical. I remember as a kid being at my uncle's house, I was four or five, and, you know, you've you got to remember the generation I was in, and yeah, the... The sci-fi movies were pretty cheesy. I mean, you wouldn't want to watch them today unless you want a good laugh. But they weren't cheesy to me. But then this one, the Martians were taking over the earth. I mean, and everything was falling apart. And as a little kid, I was like, is this going to happen? Because, you know, you're really into it. And it, it looks so real even back in, you know, 1956. Um, and that really affected me. I thought, man, is the, is the world just going to come apart? And quite honestly, you know, ever since then, even almost to this day, I worry about the trees and I worry about the grass and it's all because this movie told me that everything was going to come unglued. So I really love the Noahic Covenant because God says, no, Steve, you don't have to worry about the trees and the rocks and the frogs. They're all going to be there for a good long time until I come back. That's the point of the Noahic Covenant. While the earth remains, there's going to be seed time and harvest time. You don't have to worry about the Martian movies. But there's a time when the earth will not remain anymore. The powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. And then seed time and harvest time stops. There is a day when the Martian movie happens. But it's not from Mars. It's from God who made the heavens and the earth. And he's going to come down. And he's going to suspend all the principles of physics. Because he's allowed to do that his universe and he's going to shake the heavens and the stars at least the ones that we know that day's coming now to understand our passage kind of mentioned last week if you wanted to look at Matthew 23 through 25 I spent years puzzling over Matthew 23 through 25 
Some of you may puzzle over it. I, I don't know about you, but when I get to things in the Bible that I kind of don't understand or don't know how it fits, and that still happens today, every now and then I'll come across a verse and I'll go, oh yeah, I've really just kind of been reading past this verse for a long time because it just didn't click. It didn't make sense. It wasn't in my, I don't know, radar scope of concern. But there's usually a point when you go, okay, what about the second coming? And you realize, yeah, Jesus talked a lot about it. I was just looking in my Bible this morning, and I was trying to compare how much space on the pages of my Bible compare, you know, the space in Matthew 23 through 25 with the space for the Sermon on the Mount. And the space on the Sermon on the Mount is only about 10 lines more than the space here talking about the second coming of Christ. So it's actually a significant doctrine. And it's something that Jesus wants us to know the details about. If he didn't want us to know, he wouldn't have put them in. And so when we come to this, yeah, there's a lot of confusion out there, but you don't have to be confused. And so reading through Matthew 23 through 25, which we're not going to do this morning, but just sort of some, you know, guidelines, guidelines that I use. I've, many of you know that I'm a data architect, and I've <clears throat> spent decades, my job has been to go in and fix a whole bunch of broken stuff. I would be brought into this place to fix this and brought into that place. And inevitably, the people who were doing the, the programming, and remember, this, this is from 20 and 30 years ago. You've got a lot of code and stuff out there that the people who do, did the programming were good businessmen who went and say, oh, yeah, this SQL Server stuff, this database stuff, that's easy. And so they would do the database stuff, not realizing, no, it's not easy. <laughs> Uh, but you, you, know, you, made, you tried to make it easy and you, and you broke a lot of things. But they did their best. The main thing was is they knew their business. They just weren't data people. But they did do their best. And so they would bring me in to fix things. And the, the, the first thing you have to do is when you come into a space where you're going to fix the, perhaps, you know, some, some data things, there's three principles you use, three engineering principles. And some of you here are engineers, software engineers, so you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. The first principle is you have to reduce the complexity of all this code that's out there. That's the first thing you do, reduce complexity. Then the second thing you do is you, you move the code around and get the functionality and put it in little boxes, and that's called cohesion. What's in this little box does one thing well, and what's in this little box does one thing well. And then you have to connect them together called coupling in such a way that if one breaks here, it doesn't break everything. And you'd be surprised how all three of those principles are just violated all the time because good people who know their business try to do software thinking it's easy. And it is easy if you approach it the right way. So the first thing you do is reduce complexity. So we come to Matthew 23 through 25, and you first come to it, it's just like, this is a big glop of stuff. I mean, it's two and a half chapters, basically, and, and you've got to read a lot of material and keep it in your head and follow it through. So I used to puzzle over it and puzzle over it and puzzle over it, and then I, I read a fellow named R.C.H. Linsky who just sort of laid it all out. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes total sense. 
After that, it was really easy. It wasn't easy until it was easy, by the way. Uh, it wasn't simple until it was simple. So I'm not trying to say that you can come to this passage and just whoosh, bang, man, now I got it. But the first thing you should do is try to reduce the complexity of the passage. Put it in simple terms. And so when you do that, you find that there's really sort of paragraph divisions that pretty much follow these cohesive, reduced complexity statements. Don't try to hold it all at once. Do it a statement at a time. So as you go through Matthew, you'll find, and most people start in Matthew 24, and you really need to start in Matthew 23, the last woe. Because there Jesus says, you know, you guys have done this, this, and, and you're doing this badly, you're doing this badly, and then he gets to the final one, and he says, woe unto you Pharisees, because you go to the tombs and have, you know, Isaiah Day and go to his tomb and celebrate his tomb, or King David Day and go to his tomb. You go to the tombs of all these prophets, and then you say, while you're there, gosh, if I was there, I wouldn't have sawn Isaiah in half as the tradition goes anyway. I wouldn't have done that. And Jesus said you, what you really should be doing, what he was meaning when he goes on, he said you should have been repudiating your fathers who did that, not just saying you weren't going to be like them. And then he says, here's the, here's the, here's the bad news for you all. You are like them. If you had been in those days, you would have killed the prophets. You say you wouldn't have, but you would have. And now you're in a day when not just a prophet has come, but the Son of God himself has come, and you're going to kill me. You aren't just going to kill another individual as a messenger of God. You're going to kill God himself. Or at least attempt to. And Jesus said, because you are, they committed acts of apostasy, but because you're going to commit the ultimate act of apostasy, you are going to get the ultimate judgment. And so he says, I'm going to send you, just to, just to clarify for yourselves that not only will you kill me, I'm going to send you prophets, I'm going to send you scribes. That would be terms of them for, you know, what we would call New Testament apostles, prophets, preachers. I'm going to send these men that represent me and you're going to kill them too and you're going to persecute them and you are going to demonstrate to yourselves, to the angels, to principalities and powers and to the world around you that you are worse than your fathers. And so upon you is going to come all the blood from Abel, the first person killed for righteousness in the Bible, to Zechariah, the last person in the Jewish Bible that was persecuted and killed. Said so the blood between Abel and Zechariah in your Old Testament, you are going to be responsible for the blood of them all. And therefore, an ultimate judgment is going to come upon you, not a future generation. He said this generation. The language is very clear. So that's one cohesive unit of thought. Judgment upon these Pharisees and the whole generation that rejected Christ and used a kangaroo court to murder him. 
Peter's going to bring this up in a few verses there in Acts 2. Then you have the, the, the country boys from Galilee or at the big city Jerusalem, and they're marveling at the temple. And I think even we would marvel at the temple if we saw it back then. It's just, just an amazing structure, one of the wonders of that time. And they're saying, ah, look at, look at this big building, you know, and look at all the cool stuff. And Jesus said to him, he said, you see all these things, these stones, and these are big, heavy stones. You see this temple? Not one stone's gonna be left on another. Now, for a Jew to be told that the temple was going to be torn down was a radical thing. Remember, that's one of the things they accused him of. He had said in John 2, he had said at that time, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And they thought he was talking about the, the temple in Jerusalem, and he was talking about his own body. But later on, he does say this temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and you won't raise it up in three days. It will never be raised up like it was. You remember they brought the accusation against him. He said that he was going to destroy the temple. It was brought when he was before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the that first trial. So Jesus said there's going to be a destruction of this temple. And again, this is radical. This is put you to death stuff to even talk about it. And if we think that's not true, why did they kill Stephen? Because he said to them the same, the same message, this temple, you know, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And at that point, they stoned him to death. So this is a, this is a big thing. In their eyes, I mean, we look back and we go, okay, yeah, that happened. And they're like, no, our whole world comes unglued if this happens. Everything surrounded this temple and the priesthood. So, of course, they had some questions. All of us have questions. What about the second coming? Well, with all the stuff floating around out there and all your own opinions and everything, you got questions. I have questions. I still have questions. But they brought two particular questions to Jesus, and we learn from this, if you've got some questions about something that he said, get on your knees and go ask them. You might be surprised at where those answers come from. I remember I was puzzling over, over Daniel 9, not for the usual reasons, just but for my own, and I was reading all of my favorite go-to commentaries, and it was like none of them had any real answers. They tried, and... They tried. It was a good try, but I would just read it and it would just fall flat. I'm like, no, nah, this is not the answer. And so I was just praying to the Lord because I was preaching on it. <clears throat> and I was getting to Daniel 9. I was getting more and more nervous. What am I going to do with this? The two commentaries I was using were, were commentaries that were contrary to what I would believe on the topic because I just, I just wanted to see how they handled things. I prayed to the Lord and... <clears throat> I remember putting down Kyle and Dalich commentary, older guys, but they're really good on the Old Testament. And they had like page after page, well, this person thought this and this person thought that. So I got to the end, I was like, Lord, you know, I am never going to be figured this out. Who am I to figure this out? And it's kind of like I didn't ask the Lord to show me what it was. I just told the Lord that it was hopeless and maybe we'll, we'll figure it out in the day of the Lord. Well, lo and behold, that week, 
I was reading something I don't remember, and it just dawned on me what Daniel 9's about. And everything fell into place. He just gave it to me. It wasn't because I had some great this or that. And if you'll come to the next study on the second coming that we do on a Saturday, you can, we'll show you what we think Daniel 9 means. So come to the Lord if you don't understand these things. Ask him and he'll show you. The Lord is gracious. Ask him for the right reasons. I don't advise telling him you'll never know it, so <laughs> it worked for me, but I don't know if it'll work for you. But, uh, but the questions were clear. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives you can look down and see that temple. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, we want to know, tell us. They had specific questions. When will these things be? And the things are what? The generation of Jews, that generation being judged, the temple being destroyed. Which means Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. When will these things be? They're just radical statements. And what will be the sign of your coming? They kind of, you know, said, well, if we can get an answer to that, maybe we'll tack on a couple other things. Ask and you shall receive. What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So really, they have three questions, don't they? And if you sort of, you know, look at it a little bit more, it's really Jesus has got to give four answers because they asked about when and the sign. When will these things be? What will the sign be? Of this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Of your coming? And you'll hear me, by the way, use the word parousia because not thinking I'll use it. And the reason I do is because parousia is a Greek word. I'm not trying to be fancy. You all can learn the Greek word. Just, you can say it, parousia. It doesn't mean anything to you until you look up the definition, and it's real simple. Parousia means arrival. I probably mentioned before, you know, the kids, they're waiting for, I remember waiting for my grandma and grandpa to show up because they, we lived in California, they lived in Iowa, and it's Christmas, man, you want the presents and everything. As kids, you're, you're really focused on really one thing. And I just remember waiting for grandma, and so I'd be asking, are they coming? No, it's next week, and then I'd, are they coming? And yes, they were on their way. They were coming. They were in the process of coming. But that wasn't what I was concerned about. I wanted them to be there at the door with my presence so we can have a good Christmas and everybody, everything will be great. Well, that's what parousia means. When are grandma and grandpa going to arrive with the presents? Parousia. When is the parousia of grandma and grandpa? And so that's what they were asking. What is the sign of your parousia, your actual arrival, not just the process of coming, but the actual result of your coming and the end of the age. Well, being the kind of programmer I am, engineer that I am, I go, ah, well, Matthew 23 through 25 is, it's 
a lot of stuff, so let's try to reduce the complexity. So maybe some kind of, I don't know, grid or might call a chart might help. So I've made a chart and I've put it at the top. Well, they asked when and they asked the sign, right? And they asked when about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and they asked about the sign of his coming in the end of the age. And so really, the rest of the chapter, you have to sort of drop in this, these what you would call quadrants, these quarters, and you say, okay, when Jesus was saying this, where does it fit on this chart? And if you'll use this chart, it will immensely help you to think it through. Now, there's a few of the verses where you're like, ah, which, where does it fit here, does it fit there? And you kind of have to you know, do some assessment and stick it where it feels like it fits the most. It's not totally obvious on the surface, but some of them are just like directly obvious. It's like this is where it fits, no question. So again, I will advertise our second coming class that we'll be having some Saturday, sometime in the future, and we go through this. And it's very helpful, very encouraging, and things become simple. Now there's some more places in Matthew 23 through 25. It's really a, a section. After they ask these questions, Jesus begins to answer. And the first thing he talks about is the nations. He talks about the gospel. And he talks about experiencing persecution. And he uses the word tribulation. And that's really important in today's environment of discussions about the second coming of Christ. There's the gospel. There's the nations. There's the the, the persecution that Christians are going to endure. He says there's things that aren't signs, because you know, you've heard, oh, we've seen all these earthquakes, Jesus is coming, and Jesus said, no, that's not the sign. Well, there's all these wars happening, Jesus is coming, and Jesus says, no, that's not the sign. There's only one sign that Jesus gives with reference to just the general history of the world and the place of believers in it, Christians in it, is that the gospel goes to all nations, and he says, then shall the end come. It's the only sign he gives. And so right there it tells you, what you should you be doing between Pentecost and the day of the Lord? You should be preaching the gospel, right? So there's gospel, there's nations, and there's going to be tribulation for believers, because the world generally doesn't want to hear that they shouldn't be doing bad things because one day they'll answer to God for it. That's just not a message that the world just piles into here. And after Jesus talks about the gospels and the nations and the tribulation, the general tribulation there, then he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and what you should do. Hey, if you're on the housetop, you know, don't, don't go down to get your cloak. You leave the city because the city will not be a safe space for you when the Romans come and surround the city. So he clearly talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. He refers to Daniel 9, in which that destruction of Jerusalem is clearly laid out. And he gives warnings about how, you know, how to operate once you see 
The Roman armies, as it says in Luke, once you see the Roman armies showing up, you get out of there. No safety in the city. Get out of there. And there wasn't. There was a YouTube I, I saw on TV about, the, about Titus and his Roman armies and that final siege of Jerusalem. It was about 45 minutes long, but it was amazing. Now I can't find it. I put it in my list, I promise. I put it in my list to save. I still can't find it, but it was really, really an eye-opening and instructive video because they have the whole history of the siege of Jerusalem. It's in the annals. You know, there's Josephus. He, he was there actually in the city at the time. And then Jesus comes to our passage where we're addressing the second coming, the parousia, the actual arrival, and, and what that means. And after that, Jesus talks about some wind things. You can put in the wind quadrant if you want to use that little chart. And then from really almost the end of Matthew 24 till the middle of Matthew 25, the message is, in view of all this, be faithful, be wise and be ready. Be faithful, be wise, be ready. And then in Matthew 25, 31, where many of us are familiar with, is the actual day of final judgment. So this morning, we just want to look on these two things, the second coming, the parousia, not, not in great detail, and the final judgment. And how do they fit into Joel's prophecy. So with that basic outline of mine, I don't expect you to remember, but just kind of generally things kind of flow. And we're sort of in the middle of it. We pick up here, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, some think that this has to do with the tribulation of the destruction of Jerusalem, but that's kind of hard because that already happened in 70 A.D., and it most likely refers to the tribulation that Jesus said all saints are going to have in all ages, in all their witness to a world aligned against God. The language is kind of, you know, because immediately all you got to do is look up one passage and there's the destruction of Jerusalem. So it takes a while to go, where does this fit? But I think in the end you'll land there. It's really the only place it does fit. So Christians, for the whole history of the period between the day of Pentecost and the day of the Lord is going to be marked by tribulation. Is that your view of Christianity? Not only marked by being saved, not only marked by rejoicing in the Lord for your salvation, not only marked by growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, not only marked by bearing witness to the gospel, wherever you are, with whatever gifts you have. But it will be marked by tribulation. So when tribulation comes in your life and trials and opposition, when people speak against you, say things against you falsely for Jesus' sake, that's in the, the first big set of red letters, the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to happen. And it won't be as clear-cut as you might think. We like to think that when tribulation happens, you know, it'll have a little sign on it. This is tribulation because of Jesus. But that's just not how it happens. It usually comes subtly. It usually comes at an angle. It usually comes, you know, kind of, you know, wondering, is this me, you? Is I'm at fault of this? Is this happening because of the gospel? 
Oftentimes it's not as clear cut. Sometimes it is. But you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble on your job. You're going to have trouble just in general talking with people because you do not have the, the, the worldview that they do. You're going to have trouble in your family. It's going to happen. And the thing you want to do is just make sure it's for the gospel. That's all. If it's not, then fix things. But if it is, there's nothing you can probably do because you're not going to change your commitment to Christ. Gospel to the nations talked about tribulation. Destruction of Jerusalem talked about tribulation. Then Jesus says, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heavens will be shaken. Interesting, what's missing when we think of the apocalyptic language of Joel or the quote in Acts chapter 2? What's missing? The earth. Jesus borrows from Joel and some other passages and weaves together this statement that when I come, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about things that are centered in God. And when I come, the heavens and the earth are going to unravel. Peter describes it. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Things are going to be shaken. The day of judgment is spoken throughout all the prophets and Jesus is saying there's a time coming when it will arrive and it will arrive with me. I will bring this day of judgment. It will come visibly. It will come unmistakably. It will come inescapably. God will display his irresistible power over his creation. The sovereign Lord who created the universe is now going to take at least part of that universe, if not all of it, but at least part of it. And he's going to shake it. I've never been through a real full-on earthquake. I've been through a little tremor. It's kind of interesting. But I saw some pictures recently of an earthquake and the destruction that it wrought. Doesn't take much shaking to pull the rug out from human beings. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. The shaking of the heavens will not be a passing thing. It will be unmistakably recognized as an intervention of God. The sign of the Son of Man, whatever that is. I'm, I'm, you can ask me, but I don't have a, really have an answer other than it's the sign of the Son of Man. Whatever it is, we'll know it when we see it. They'll know that this is a God event. This isn't just an event of nature. This isn't climate change. And the focus will be on Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And the Son of Man terminology here comes right out of Daniel 8, and you can just read the last part and you'll see it. It's the same thing coming on the clouds of heaven. And all the tribes are going to mourn because all of a sudden people are going to go, this isn't climate change, this isn't going away, this is God, we know it, we intuitively know it, the sign of the Son of Man is clear, he's coming with power and great glory, he's showing up, what am I going to do? It will not be a welcome sight. Not for most. The actual reality, the stark recognition 
that God does exist and Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and is now showing up here on earth, it will overwhelm everybody. I'm just telling you, I want Jesus to come back, but I'm also telling you, I'm not so, that day of the Lord, I'm like, eh, I just want to get that over with. I know I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb, and I know my sins are forgiven, but I also know <laughs> there are things I have to answer for. But what about the ungodly? If the righteous is scarcely saved, it says in 1 Peter 4, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Jesus shows up in all the tribes of the earth. Everybody is there. And as we move on through the passage, you realize it's not just the people currently alive. Everybody is being raised from the dead. The whole of humanity is there. Ages past, ages present. And they are all raised from the dead. And they don't have a say in it. They don't get to say, I don't want to be raised from the dead. They will be raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. There's a, that's a certainty. Unless you're alive already. And as folks who are there and folks get raised from the dead and folks start to see God, their accountability to God and Jesus Christ will grip them with absolute terror. the finality of God and the day of judgment will come upon their consciousness and they will know that this is not a passing thing and this is not something they can escape. They will mourn. The sign of the Son of Man is, to me, puzzling anyway. Maybe somebody has an answer. I'll be glad to hear it, but it's insignificant to the real meaning of the passage. Whatever the sign of the Son of Man is, it clearly introduces the actual arrival of Jesus. Every human being will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is not secret. It's sudden, it's unexpected, but it's not secret. The God that the atheists have mocked will suddenly show up. The Jesus that unbelievers casually dismissed will suddenly show up. And he's not just going to show up over there or over there, east to the west, Jesus said. power and great glory. And when Jesus comes, he's going to send out his angels with a loud trumpet, 2431. Jesus will come with an innumerable host of powerful angels, those 12 legion of, legions of angels you could have, called, could have called at the day of his crucifixion. He didn't call for them then, but he's calling for them now. He's bringing them with him. There will be this loud trumpet sound, a loud call, a loud noise. 
Watch a YouTube video on Krakatau. It supposedly made the biggest explosive noise in the history of human history, I guess they would say. 340 decibels, apparently that'll just really kill you. It's so, so loud. You know, this is louder than Krakatau. The whole world's going to hear it. And it will be distinguishable. People will hear it and will intuitively then at that point know what's happening. And by the way, angels and trumpet calls or the voice of the archangel, this, this noisy coming of Christ with angels is referenced in almost every passage that talks about the parousia. And so we see the parousia is both visible and audible. And what are these angels going to do? But they're going to go and gather as elect from the four winds, a description as from everywhere. The four winds was, you know, four corners of the earth. From one end of heaven to the other. So he's not just gathering people on earth, is he? This is a day of resurrection. All the saints, both living and having died, will be brought together at this time. Now some might say, well, is this gathering, could we call it a rapture, things like that? And I think we're going to find out, no, it doesn't really fit that paradigm. So now the rest of Matthew 24, in the first half of 25, talks about some things about when, you know, when you see the fig tree, be like the days of Noah. No one knows the, the, the day or the hour. Those are wins. And then Jesus, after he's done with his wins, and those are the ones you've got to figure out, well, which box do they belong to? After he's done with that, he starts talking about you need to be ready. The ten virgins, you need to be ready. The householder who was given authority over a household, and what did he do? But he, he just went and started to beat his servants, fellow servants, and take advantage of everything and live the high life, and the Lord will come and cut him asunder. If you know what time the thief was going to come, you'd wake up and sit there with your, with your chosen method of home invasion prevention. Because you knew what was going on. He said, well, you don't really know, so always be ready. The kingdom of God, serving the Lord in the kingdom of God. If you got one talent, use it. If you got three or five, and this, this counts kind of different in the Gospels because Jesus is speaking in different places. But however many talents you got, invest them. Or is that what you're doing? Is that what you're doing with your life? Or have you forgotten who you are? There's a day coming when whatever the Lord has given you, however small or however great, he has an absolute expectation that you're investing it. Are you doing that? So Jesus is going to bring this day of judgment. And if you go over to Matthew chapter 25, Jesus picks up in Matthew 25, 31, exactly where he left off in Matthew 24, 30. Everything else in between is kind of sort of, a, you know, one of Steve's going over and talking about a few things over here. 
and then he gets back to the topic. So in my Bible, I have Matthew 24, 31 at the top on this side of the page, and I have Matthew 25, 31 over here, 24, 30, 25, 31, so I can just go from here to here and pick up the continuity. So if you just kind of put your hand over everything in between, you'll get the continuity. So Matthew 25, 31 through 32, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on, the thr- on his glorious throne. This is clearly a reference to Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Glory, angels, throne. And we see that it's just unmistakable. I mean, maybe some people would have some objection to it for some reason, but I just don't see how those objections can really fly. Jesus said, I'm coming with power and great glory, shaking, the, shaking the, the heavens and the earth. This is pretty obvious, pretty visible. And when I come within this glory with these angels, I'm going to sit on my glorious throne. This is not an earthly throne per se. In other words, it's not just an earthly throne that you'd be able to touch necessarily. Because we're talking about power and glory. We're talking about the Son of God. We're in Revelation 20 through 22 territory here. Second coming is upon us. The day of judgment is upon us. The new heavens and the new earth are next, just over the horizon. And it's a glorious throne. His majesty will shine just like that first chapter of Revelation. His countenance shone like the sun in its strength. That's what this throne will be. It's not some ordinary throne. It's a glorious throne. And the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations. That means the resurrection has happened. There's been a general resurrection of all men. You can read about it in John 6. The just and the unjust. All the nations are gathered before him. This is that gathering that Jesus began to talk about in 2431. And you will be there. This is you. you. You will be in this space. You will be among the nations. The billions. You will be there. And Jesus said, speaking in the third person, and he, the Son of Man, will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, there's not only this great gathering, there's this great separation. So everybody is gathered, and then there's the separation process. And imagine the shock of people's faces when they realize this is true, this is real, this is fixed, this is permanent. I will not get out of this. I cannot escape this. I cannot go hide. What is my fate? Which side will I be on? And here the outcome is inexorably established and inexorably fixed. And just as an aside, notice how Jesus presents his second coming. It's not in the language of the theologians, is it? It's the language of goat herders. The second coming, almost every time you look at it in the Gospels, it's the language of farmers and goat herders. It's easy to understand. You don't have to be a genius. You just, he's got a big piece of stuff you gotta, you gotta work through. But this isn't hard to figure out. Now, a city kid, I have you know, a hard time. It's like, yeah, sh- separating sheep from goats. I've never seen that happen, actually. 
I probably read about it one, you know, a while back, but I don't remember. That's just because I'm a city kid. But this is basic stuff. And Jesus is going to put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And you will be in one of those groups. You will be there. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? The foundation of the world. If you are on the right side, if you are with the sheep, it's not because you were a wonderful person, at least not at the beginning. It's because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. See, election has its implications everywhere. You're blessed of my Father. You're not here because, okay, you figured things out and you, know, you, you made your life right and you turned your, over a new leaf and all that. No, you were blessed of God. And what do you get? A kingdom prepared from before the foundation of the world, prepared in eternity. This is something God has been purposing and thinking about for as long as he has existed. Do you want to be in this group? All you got to do to be in this group is, well, there's two things. You got to repent of sin and self-will and the world and following the world and putting your hope in the world and all the things that belong to that. And you got to believe, truly turn and embrace from the heart Jesus Christ. You don't have to know a lot about him. You just have to know he's the Savior of the world. And you just come to him. You'll spend the rest of your life learning all about him. But your starting point is faith in Christ. And you will be in this group. The king, the one who's in charge of everything, will place you in this group. Then he also will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You, we've all heard the jokes. You know, I... I don't mind going to hell because all my friends will be there. I can promise you that is a untrue statement. All your friends may be there, but you will never see them. You will be all alone. And you will be cursed by God. And that curse will follow you forever. It will follow you into the eternal fire. Whatever that looks like, that's how Jesus describes it. It's an eternal fire. It's an ongoing eternal fire. It was originally prepared to deal with the devil and his angels, to deal with evil. Something we don't know how it came into being, but we know how it's going to be finally undone and finished with. And you do not want to be there. But if you keep aligning yourself with sin and the world and Satan, that is where you will be. And you don't have to be there. Jesus, the Savior, has come. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Eternal is a forever word. Just as the life is unending, so will be the punishment.
And so we see that the parousia that started a chapter before and now finishes here brings the final day of judgment. And other passages make it clear that this ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. So here we are in Peter, Joel. Who would have thought that Joel would have given us a framework like this? Joel speaks of the last days that begin at the day of Pentecost and end with the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. And so if you just want to see it simple, there it is. Not a hard picture to grasp. It's for farmers and sheep herders, goat herders. This is our message. All of history is moving toward a final day of judgment, a day of reckoning for every human being. And we call upon everyone to believe on Jesus who can save us from the wrath to come. I don't know where to place these, and we don't really have time or time's gone, so just if you'll read the book of Revelation, you'll see this same language in chapter 6, 12 through 17. And you'll see it's very similar. It's, it's dialed back a bit simply because other things are explained, but it's the same language, the same sense of heaven and earth fleeing away. So our question for next week We've seen the beginning of the last days. We've seen the end of the last days. What do you do in the middle? What's the middle all about? So let's uh, pray, and uh, next week we'll pick that up. Heavenly Father, we come, and we are sobered this morning, and we should be, and we need to be, and you tell us to be. There's a time for joy, and there's a, a time even just for casual conversation, but this, this topic does not bring that to mind. And Lord, may every one of us in our lives truly reflect upon this day. Each one of us, me and everyone here. And let it, Lord, let this be a part of our perspective, our understanding of your history. You give it to us clearly. You give it to us in the language of farmers and goat herders. Lord, let us embrace what you say and not go out and speculate. It doesn't help, it doesn't do anything. And Lord, this will be something firmly settled in our minds and hearts and in our message to people. We need to remind them that there's a day of judgment that they are fast moving toward and they may be there at least uh, they're alive now, but they may not be alive tomorrow. The day of salvation may close for them at any moment. And Lord, let us have the sense when we are bringing the gospel, the sense of urgency and the sense of sobriety. Lord, you love human beings, but you're not going to get off your throne and you're not going to abandon your righteousness because of human sin. You will deal with it. And Lord, just pray that we could have that as part of our warning, part of our message. There's a glorious Savior who can save real human beings from a sure, certain, final judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.